Welcome back to Dark Valley. I'm Jennifer Mel. This episode is a kind of interlude at the halfway point of season one. It's a roundtable discussion between myself and my colleagues at Crawlspace Media, Tim Polari and Lance Reinsterna. So recently I was connected to a source that's going to remain anonymous for the time being. But through this source, several new pieces of information have become available to me, which we're going to discuss in this episode. We will be talking about autopsy reports and some of the more gruesome points of these killings, so please take care when listening. Episode 8 of the series proper will air on Friday, August 4th, and every episode will be released publicly each week and culminate in the 12th and final episode of Season 1 of Dark Valley. Additionally, on August 4th, you can sign up for our subscription service on Apple or missing.supportingcast.fm to get early access to episodes 8 through 12. Thank you so much for listening up until this point. I hope you enjoy the discussion between myself and my colleagues, and I hope this prepares you well for the epic second half of Dark Valley. Okay, without further ado... So I wanted to introduce you guys to my colleagues at Crawlspace Media. We have Tim Polari and Lance Reinsterna. Thank you guys for joining me today. Hey, Jen. Thanks a lot for having us. So bittersweet doing this episode because it's the interlude episode. That means that Dark Valley is halfway over, but really, an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting us on and chatting with you at the halfway point. Yeah, it's my pleasure. We all kind of discussed if we should run all the episodes of season one through in one go. But what we didn't really count on is that there are new developments happening in real time. So part of the reason why we wanted to do this kind of roundtable discussion between the three of us, um, it was to actually buy us a little bit more time to work on those leads, develop them, look into them thoroughly. And then the other reason is because we're talking about a lot of cases here. We're talking about seven murder cases and Jane's case, uh, her attack in 1988. And it's a lot of information to kind of wade through. And the audience is going to be kind of required to draw on this case knowledge as we move into the final five episodes. So here we just wanted to give some recaps of the cases, um, some updates have come into you know our inboxes. I uh, can't really talk too much about our new source, but there's definitely more information, including autopsy reports. And, uh, you know, we get some questions answered. It's going to be a little rough going, I think. It's it's definitely more information about what happened to their bodies, um, you know, what kind of wounds were inflicted. So fair warning for that. Is there anything you guys want to add before we kind of jump into this? Uh, you're a little mistaken when you said that we did not anticipate some of the new leads that were coming in. I think 
I, I think just based on like the legwork that was put into the investigation and just the not just the, but the relationships that you developed with Jane and with John Philpin and, you know, members of law enforcement and family members, it was almost impossible for there not to be something to come in to talk about at a midpoint in the season. No, I think you're right. I mean, I recall a pretty early conversation between the three of us before we kind of embarked on this journey that we were hoping new information would come out during the process. I guess maybe what I had in my mind is like, you know, I do, I set aside, you know, X amount of months to do research. I'd accumulate everything I could. And then I would, you know, put that together in the podcast that you hear now. What I didn't really anticipate was that so much would come forward in this process. And that took, that was like outside of my, you know, prescribed research window. So it's all exciting stuff. Yeah, very exciting. Hard to keep up with when it comes in uh, on a day-to-day basis, but uh, hey, that's what season two is for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Are you guys ready to dive into these cases? Let's do it. So I want to begin with Kathy Milliken's case. This was in 1978. We didn't spend a whole lot of time with Kathy's case because it was a little up in the air whether it was actually connected to those cases near the Claremont area, beginning with Betsy Critchley. And we just didn't have a whole lot of information about what had happened to Kathy and unfortunately wasn't able to get in touch with any of her family at this point. Still time for it, of course. But just to recap here, Kathy was found murdered on October 24th, 1978 in a wetland preserve in New London, New Hampshire. Due to this new source that I developed, we have a new timeline for Kathy's murder. So on the 24th, she told a colleague that she was going to go birding at the Chandler Brook Wetland Preserve. She arrived between 5.30 and 6 p.m. And then a little after 6 p.m., a police officer was patrolling the trail and recalled seeing Kathy's Volkswagen and a second gray car in the parking lot. Kathy's husband, Charles, or Chuck, uh, was at a conference at Dartmouth College, which is about 30 miles away. When Kathy didn't return the next day, he reported her missing at about 9 p.m. And at 11.30 p.m. the next day, on October 25th, the Sunapee police searched the wetland preserve and discovered her body about 20 feet off the nature trail. Uh, She was partially concealed under some brush, and her belongings including binoculars and keys, were found scattered along the trail. So this is contrary to what I reported last time, if you guys remember, right? Apparently she did not have a camera with her? Yeah, she didn't. Yeah, according to this source, she wasn't photographing birds. She just brought a pair of binoculars to view them, I guess, take notes, like take field notes or something. Um, But those binoculars and her car keys were found scattered around. We also have more information about what wounds were inflicted on Kathy. So Kathy had been stabbed and slashed over 20 times by a sharp stainless steel blade about one inch wide, and the fatal wound was a slash to her neck, which severed her trachea, and there was a six-inch slash across her neck in addition to the cut that severed her trachea. She also sustained some slash-type wounds in her lower abdomen. Um, This is usually called evisceration or partial evisceration. And she sustained another, at least another four stab wounds to her abdomen. 
Yeah, pretty violent attack. Yeah, and because of this information and other information that we're going to get into with some of the victims we know pretty well, uh, this is what police were using to connect these cases. I know we had discussed this like V-shape stab pattern. I haven't seen that mentioned anywhere in any official report. It was something the media had latched onto at the time. Uh, but what's common about these murder victims is that they do have this kind of fatal cut to the neck, two, three cuts to the neck, and then these like evisceration wounds in addition to superficial and deeper kind of abdomen stab wounds. Um, on some cases, the evisceration was done post-mortem. So that's pretty, that's a pattern. That's more of a pattern than this like vague V-shape we, thing we've been talking about. Right. The post-mortem stabs or slashes, they are consistent with several of the victims? Yeah. Yeah, we'll get into it. And can you just run through what evisceration means? Post-mortem evisceration. Yeah. So an, an evisceration is like a, a cut along the lower stomach so that your bowels and organs kind of come out. And is there any difference between evisceration and disembowelment? I think it means the same thing. So eviscerating is like kind of the, the cutting open of the bowel, uh, but they both mean the same thing, uh, same area. This is postmortem. Some of them. Kathy, I think, was not postmortem. At least the, uh, the file doesn't note a postmortem wound. And this goes beyond the MO that was previously public or previously put out there to the public with the V-shaped pattern. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, this is the first time we're talking about these wounds publicly. What additional insight do learning about these wounds give you on the killer? Well, they're super intentional, right? And I think before I just felt like that v-shape or like general stabs to the neck and chest weren't necessarily enough to connect these cases i mean i know we're talking about the the same period of time and we're talking about the same general area in the upper connecticut river valley uh, but i just you know was super vague about why they were matching these quote-unquote stab patterns uh w between the cases i think this like very deliberate cut to the neck which is usually the fatal wound on these victims, is like pretty, pretty important. It makes me kind of wonder if we're dealing with somebody who had a fascination with women's necks, should we be looking at strangulation victims? Um, I think there's a, there, there's a whole kind of universe that this opens up into, if you consider uh, what I guess the motivation is behind that kind of wound. It also reminds me of how one might dress a deer or a kill if you're a hunter so usually like you'll you'll take a shot either with a gun or a bow and if that shot isn't great uh, you don't want the animals to suffer so you slit their throats so they bleed out pretty quickly and then field dressing an animal you have to disembowel and eviscerate them uh, to get out all that blood and guts and stuff so it doesn't spoil the meat and I hate to talk about human beings in those terms, but potentially that's what was going on with this guy. Okay, so then you have to consider the mindset that this person was in, because even if it's postmortem or not, I mean, just say 
hypothetically speaking for the scenario, it is post-mortem. So he doesn't have to watch the reaction of somebody who is still clinging on to life as he's disemboweling them. Uh, so at least there's some ease there to do it. You know, he doesn't have to see their eyes. He knows that they're already dead. But the will to do something like that to a human body means that he has some sort of detachment from the biology of it, like a hunter. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to him having done something similar in the past, either with an animal or with a human. Yeah, and again, we don't know that all of these eviscerating wounds were done post-mortem. It's kind of hard to tell. But I think, like, broad overview of all of these cases where we have the cut to the neck and the evisceration and the abdominal stab wounds, it seems like the... There's all there's definitely defensive wounds on each woman's hands, forearms, that sort of thing when they're trying to catch the knife um, and not have it like hit any vital organs or, or anything, which is very natural to do if you're fighting off, you know, someone trying to stab you, of course. But in my mind, like the sequence of this pattern would be stabs to the abdomen that are deeper or more superficial. Then we have the fatal cut to the neck and then maybe during death or right after death we have the eviscerating stab wound or stab slash yeah that's some very violent uh behavior obviously uh familiar with um blood or not uncomfortable uh with it or uh you know using a knife could be could have some experience as a butcher or a um taxidermist perhaps yeah, and concerning Kathy Milliken's case, whereas the knife wasn't found at the crime scene, there was the tip of the blade still stuck in a wound on Kathy's body. Uh, they were speculating that it was kind of a small one-inch wide blade um, and that it might have been a, like one of those knives that you fold out, not like a fixed blade knife, which is quite different to the knife that Jane Borowski describes. And you're going to hear in a later episode her describe that knife. Uh, she had described a fixed blade knife and something a bit larger as well. I wonder if the blade snapped off, right? And it's a it's a folding knife. So it has like a lock on it or something when it goes out to like the full, like, I guess, length. I wonder if maybe the killer had injured himself with that. Maybe it snapped shut on him and... And then he noticed the blade was chipped at the tip and then was thinking, we can never use a folding knife again. Yeah. I mean, if if Kathy is the first victim or one of the earliest victims, I hate to say it, but there's definitely like a learning curve going on with this killer. Um, he's going to, you know, learn what works and what doesn't work. And certainly using a fold out blade definitely snapped in Kathy's body. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe he did switch weapons at some point. Yeah. I don't think that's uncommon to sort of evolve like that. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And then the last thing I want to mention about Kathy's case is the Sunapee police had focused their investigation on her husband, Charles, even though he was reportedly 30 miles away at a conference. So I had a pretty like strong alibi. People saw him there and everything. So I'm not really sure why they focused so hard in on him. And I don't know if they had any other 
uh, persons of interest on their radar at the time. But as we know, Kathy's case quickly went cold. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. All right, let's uh, recap Mary Elizabeth Critchley, known as Betsy, to her friends and family. Uh, She was hitchhiking on July 25th, 1981. She was hitchhiking off of the Mass Pike near Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, Somebody picked her up, and her body was not found until like six or seven weeks later on August 9th, 1981. And her body was found in the woods of Unity, New Hampshire, by a couple loggers. I know there was a kind of a lot of kind of back and forth and discussion about this tarp that Betsy may or may not have been wrapped in. We heard that kind of wild story from Betsy's brother, Jay, that he asked the police to take him to the site where his sister's body was found. And once he was there, he saw this black tarp. And he had asked the police officer, you know, does this have anything to do with the case? And he was like, oh, yeah, like that tarp was wrapped around her body. And her brother, like rightly, was like, well, why wasn't it collected into evidence? And I don't think he ever received an answer on that. But he is a performance artist. So he decided to kind of wrap himself up in this tarp and take a series of photographs, which is like just a really moving story about what what you do in your grief. Um, I don't know if you guys had a particular reaction to that. I don't know. I feel like if it was anybody else or if we just weren't so invested in the story and knowing the type of family that, you know, she was a part of, that the Critchleys were, it might come across as super eerie and suspicious. You know, I'm not a performance artist. I don't know if this were to happen to me. I wouldn't want to do that. And and then you're told by the police that it's not part of the evidence. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't read his story as anything like nefarious. I just thought, you know, he's an artistic man who wanted to express his grief. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, way to express your grief. It's definitely an interesting reaction. Um, yeah, I don't take anything suspicious about it. I think he's got a, an artistic uh, spirit. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess later on in that episode, in episode two, I was trying to determine like via conversations with ex-law enforcement, with Dr. John Philpin, the criminal profiler, if there actually was this tarp, if Betsy actually was wrapped in this tarp. And I was able to confirm via our unnamed source, that Betsy's body was wrapped in this black plastic tarp. As far as I know, the police never collected this into evidence and never processed it in any way. Well, that seems a bit shocking, a bit of an oversight. I don't know why they wouldn't take that into evidence. Yeah, I mean, obviously there wasn't DNA at the time in 1981, but I would imagine like a plastic tarp would hold like the oils from your fingers pretty well like if there was fingerprints or something it could have been dusted there could have been hairs trapped in there you could use that tarp to match it with other tarps that a suspect might have in their garage or something like there's a lot of uses for something like that yeah can we talk about the route from framingham massachusetts to unity new hampshire yeah go for it 
Because that is a, a very uh, perplexing part of um, Betsy's story to me, because it seems like she had hitchhiked, which is you know a couple more than a couple hours. It's like two and a half hours at least. Um, so she had gotten down to Framingham, Massachusetts. And of course, the Mass Pike, if you're familiar with Massachusetts at all, the Massachusetts Pike, the highway goes through Framingham. Um, but it seems like if she was hitchhiking somewhere in that area, that the most direct route to Unity would have been um, not on the Mass Pike, but it would have been on Route 12. So it's just kind of interesting to me that it's sort of a back route. It's not it's not the Mass Pike to 91, you know, which is what I would probably take today, not being too familiar with these areas. Yeah, that route goes like all up along the Connecticut River, right? I think it even passes through Claremont 12A, I think. And that is the route where we have a couple other women disappearing from as well. Yeah. But yeah, it is curious. And that's not really where Betsy was headed. Like, I'm not sure if she got a ride from someone else who was like headed in the Vermont direction because she was trying to get back to Burlington, Vermont, because she had to start teaching at UVM. I think in two days after her dental appointment in Massachusetts. Um, so she was like trying to get up there by any means possible. So I'm wondering if the first car she got into was the dangerous one. Um, and he decided that he was going to take this back route up route 12 uh, to unity. Hard to say. Um, in episode two, we definitely lay out three different routes that they could have taken from Framium up to unity. And I think they were all pretty, like, took the same amount of time, like two, two and a half hours. So it's hard to say, like, he took the shortest route or the longest route or whatever. Uh, it's kind of a, but it's weird to picture um, her in the car with the killer, like, before he did anything or something. You know what I mean? Like, just imagining that tension is, like, just kind of disturbing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually kind of interesting to think about for a second, because it's like... He had to have been unassuming enough for these women to get in the car with him. Uh, there was Bernice who was hitchhiking. There was Eva who was hitchhiking and Betsy. So all three of these women had to look at this person and be like, I trust him enough to to get into the car. And I know hitchhiking was like more common at the time, but they probably wouldn't get into the car with like someone who just looked mean or gruff or violent or something. So he had to be. I don't know, kind of charismatic, perhaps. And then what happened in that car? Like, was it immediate that they knew something was off once they got in the car? Or did he maintain conversation, especially with Betsy, because they had to have traveled together at least some distance. We don't know where Betsy was actually killed, but he would have had to have taken her to a more secluded spot to do that. Yeah, that's interesting to to think about. Um you know, sort of a another crime scene um, in in Betsy's case. I mean, it could be his car, it could be somewhere on the side of the road. I guess, yeah, it's kind of uh, kind of strange to think about. Also, I wonder. Lance had mentioned possible cut or cuts on the killer's hands. I mean, we know that that's a common occurrence um, during murders, especially knife attacks. What could this person have done for a living for that to not have? Um, alerted people, you know, you know what I mean? Or, or maybe he just didn't have people close in his life, but 
I, I do feel like if, if, you know, you saw a guy who is, uh, about to give you a ride w- with a bunch of cuts on his hand, you know, that, that's probably something to, um, that would go into the disturbing pile. You know what I mean? That, that would be possible reason not to get in that car. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think like up there in the Valley, especially at that time, it was, it was like rural. People had manual labor jobs. They worked in factories. They worked on machinery. They were farmers. And then, you know, part of the early profile that Dr. Philpin had kind of developed is that this person would have been a hunter, a fisherman. So there's a bunch of like, I don't know, normal scenarios that you might be injured in. Like you might not really look twice at a dude who's dressed in flannel, like kind of muddy in that area. You know what I mean? It's not like we're in Manhattan. (laughs) (laughs) But is that the kind of guy that's going to be able to um, get people into his car by just a smile, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I think I don't know how much like his appearance would have mattered if he looked like like a mountain man or, you know, blue collar sort of guy. I think definitely he would have to be somewhat charismatic, right? Or present normally. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do agree there. Yeah. And I think like maybe the psychology of someone hitchhiking a long distance like Betsy is different from someone like Bernice who is just trying to get across town or Eva. I mean, these were small areas. Everybody knew each other. I don't think they had any reason to distrust their neighbor driving by, you know? So it's interesting. I mean, I know Betsy was in a rush to get back to Vermont, and maybe it was the fact that nobody had stopped. Or maybe she had good reason to trust the person who who picked her up, you know? Who knows? Yeah. Well, I want to just revisit real quick the uh, detail about the tarp being black. That's correct, right? That it wasn't a wasn't a blue tarp or, you know, one of those tarps that you typically see just covering a pile of wood. Right, yeah. Black plastic tarp is what the file read. I don't know how big or what brand. I don't know. Have you ever driven by one of those? I don't even know what they are. They have, like, it's where they keep, like, the town's sand supply for when they need to sand a, a highway. And you see, like, the big black plastic covering that's on these huge sand pot, sand mounds that's what where my mind went but then i was like well it's huge you know and i was wondering do they have smaller ones of those that's a good thought i mean gosh i wish we had that tarp like maybe it would give us a clue as to where the person could have purchased such a thing or like did he get it through his workplace does it suggest something about his occupation or just his dna or fingerprints <laughs> or just his <laughs> fingerprints like, yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, who knows? When I was talking with Jay, Betsy's brother, he seemed to think like he still had that tarp in his garage somewhere. I mean, this dude's like he was taking the the Zoom call from his like studio, which was in his garage, and it just looked like there's shelves upon shelves upon shelves of stuff that he uses in his art pieces. Um, but he seemed to think like, you know, her he had belongings from her car that were, you know, recovered and had at one point planned to do some sort of like exhibition um, with items found in her car and stuff. So that that tarp might still be around. I don't know how usable it would be now, like for the forensic stuff, but I don't know. Yeah, it would have some chain of custody issues, I think, um, for sure. But uh, and, and obviously Jay's DNA on it, too. Yeah, so I don't know that the law enforcement would take it back, but it's definitely possible. I mean, it should also contain the killer's DNA. Maybe. 
Hard to say after all all these years. You guys ready to move on to Bernice? Sure. All right. So just as a refresher, Bernice Cordemanche was 16 years old, and she was trying to hitchhike from Claremont, where she was living with her boyfriend, uh, to the next town over in Newport. And that was just like a 10, 11 minute drive. Uh, So she was seen kind of on the Main Street Bridge in the middle of Claremont. And at the other end of this bridge is Leo's one-stop market. So she would have had to pass by that market uh, to go to the corner of North Street and Washington. And that's where she was last seen. There's a little bit of, um, I guess, debate on who she was last seen with. Some people say uh, she was seen getting into a white pickup truck with two men inside, but it's not substantiated or confirmed by anybody. I think there's a little bit of shade thrown on that because her boyfriend's parents also had a white truck and maybe the dates were confused in some way. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. And so we have a little bit of more information on uh, Bernice's autopsy. So there's a forensic pathologist, Dr. Henry Ryan, who determined that Bernice had been killed by stab wounds to the throat, similar to those of Kathy Milliken. But advanced decomp, when she was found, precluded any additional findings on her cause of death. I think they may have found some nick marks on the bones, and that's how they determined that her throat had been cut in some way. But again, we have that same type pattern that we've talked about previously with Kathy and Betsy. Same with the uh, disembowelment? I could not tell. Um, And if Bernice's remains were skeletal, I don't know how you would tell unless you like nicked a pelvic bone or something. But I don't think they found anything like that. Mm. Were these bodies, when they were disemboweled, were they disemboweled in like under their clothes or were their clothes cut through? Oh, that I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I do know that in some cases, clothing was removed. Ellen Freed's case, for example, uh, clothing wasn't found with her remains. Um, And then one other one as well. But yeah, I don't know. I know Bernice's clothing was found there, but I found no notes on if that clothing was torn. Right. Because Jane's wasn't. Removed? Like Jane's clothes. Yeah, removed. He was, go- he was stabbing through the clothes. I do want to talk about Jane kind of at the end of this um, and how she might fit into this MO. So thank you for reminding me. But before we move on to the next case, anything about Bernice that you guys want to tidy up? No, I was just going to ask about this Dr. Henry Ryan. Is he still with us? No, unfortunately, Dr. Ryan has passed away. I would have loved to interview him. All right. And then we have Ellen Freed. And Ellen, as you might recall... Uh, was a nurse at Valley Regional Hospital. Um, after her shift around 11, 11.30 at night, she didn't have her phone in her own home, so she went to Leo's One Stop Market to use the payphone. And this was on the evening of July 19th, 1984. This is, as we recall, right in the middle of Claremont on Main Street. Her body was not found until September of 1985. Her remains were found in Kellyville, New Hampshire. I don't know. I think I forgot to mention in Bernice's case, but Bernice was also found, I think, within a couple miles of Ellen in this rather small area between Claremont and Newport. 
Okay, so definitely some familiar geography here for uh, for the killer. It's interesting, like if we had nothing else to connect these cases, like if we didn't have the timeline, if we didn't have the stab patterns, etc. There's at least two bodies found in each location, right? We have Bernice and Ellen found with within Callieville, within a mile, and then Eva and Betsy were found super close together, um, cross town in the Unity Woods. So Bernice and Ellen were pretty close together in terms of like the timeline for murders, right? So Ellen and Bernice were two months apart, their murders, and their bodies were found in the same area. So it's like maybe he was trying out the Kellyville area. And I mean, it wasn't a terrible location to pick if you didn't want them to be found because it was years later that their skeletal remains were found. Conversely, you have two cases separated by four years, Betsy Critchley and Eva Morse, who are found even closer together um, in the Unity Woods. And is there some evolution that you've found as far as um, hiding the bodies or, or putting them further off the road? Because I know Kathy was, was found the next day, right? Yeah, she was found the next day because she had let somebody know that she was going to this wetland preserve. Um, and she was found about 20 feet off the trail that was marked. The report did note that there was like partial covering of the body. That's the same as Ellen Freed. Um, she was also partially covered. But we never know if that was like an intentional move on the killer's part to like put brush and leaves and debris over the body or if that happened naturally due to you know animal activity or wind or flooding or you know who knows right but there wasn't any uh burying or anything like that so he didn't take as much precaution as he could have right yeah i think yeah it was it was a pretty quick kind of dump job bernice is strange like ellen was found off of a used jogging trail like a little out of the ways and she still wasn't found for you know a year but bernice was off this like super rural road and i'm thinking part of it was even private property too even at the time so i mean that raises the question it's like did those people who own the property know <laughs> know this person did he have permission to be on there did he go under the cover of night and you know surreptitiously leave the body there why did he choose that place um, I think it was definitely more efforts to hide the body in Bernice's case. You know, it's really wild to me is that we've been talking about this for years and it's never occurred to me until right now when you said, did he like, why, why this place? Did he leave this body? Did he go there under cover of night? I mean, if you're right on the Connecticut River, why aren't you dumping the bodies in the Connecticut River? That's a really good point, Lance. Um, I don't know. I would say that's a good um, indication that this killer doesn't own a boat and, you know, is, isn't a fisherman for a living, I would say. There you go. There you go, right? That's wild that we had just talked about what kind of occupation would this person have and, you know, you're thinking mechanic or logger or something like that, fisherman, you know, someone who who could cut themselves in their in their profession. That just eliminates fishermen right there. He's got no boat. He's got He's got no real, like, knowledge of water. He's more comfortable in the woods. Yeah, that's a good thing to note. I mean, uh, the thought has crossed my mind. I was like, well, what if the he, they 
were dumped in a body of water and flooding happened or, you know, the seasons came and went and the body was moved. But yeah, like every victim that was found near a tributary of the Connecticut River was like far enough away that flooding wouldn't have moved the body from the Connecticut River proper to a tributary. Like there's no way that that could have happened. There is one tiny update in Ellen Freed's case. I know I had reported that her remains were too decomposed to determine a cause of death, and that I think is a, the official party line, according to the Attorney General's website. Or maybe they just don't want to release any information publicly. But according to the report I read, uh, the same Dr. Henry Ryan, this forensic pathologist, concluded that Ellen had been stabbed repeatedly in the neck. But I can't find this confirmed anywhere else. Um, there's an additional note about her being potentially sexually assaulted, as we've talked about before, uh, but no reasoning was given. This is a thing that Dr. Philpin and I kind of went back and forth on. He said, you know, they just didn't have the evidence to determine or even speculate that an assault had occurred. The only reason we really came up with is that her clothing wasn't found with her with her body that's the only reason why it was considered to be a possibility of a sexual assault i think so i mean unless there's something i just don't know that they're holding back uh, but again her remains were found skeletal so how are you determining sexual assault from that yeah it seems like a leap um there or just an assumption perhaps yeah so then we have Eva Morse, uh, who was hitchhiking up a road we had talked about earlier, Route 12, um, and she was hitchhiking from work toward the town of Claremont. She disappeared on July 10th, 1985, around North Walpole, New Hampshire, and then she wasn't found until April 25th of 1986, and again, that was in the woods of Unity, New Hampshire, and I know we had just mentioned this, but I want to reiterate, um, I think I had reported in the podcast proper that Eva's body and Betsy's body were found 500 yards apart, but according to this report, it was 500 feet apart. So that's way closer than I originally thought. Yeah, there's no question about be it being the same killer, I would say, in, the, in that kind of scene. Yeah, definitely. Like... It wasn't published, at least in the newspapers I read from the time, like where exactly Betsy Critchley's body was found. Like you would have had to know from experience or if we're being generous, you would have had to talk to somebody who saw the police there or, you know, called the body in. But I think it's much more likely that the killer had also killed Betsy Critchley and knew the exact spot where her body had been. Yeah. What do you guys make of like this? So it's the it's the closest that two victims are found together, but it's four years apart. Like, what do you guys make of that? Especially because the other two, Bernice and Ellen, hadn't been found yet. I mean, the the time frame isn't as confusing to me as the locations. Betsy, right? Betsy disappeared from Framingham, Massachusetts, and her body was found in Unity, and Eva's body was found 500 feet from where Betsy's body was found. And Eva disappeared in North Walpole, New Hampshire, 
which is not close to Framingham. So the pickup of Betsy would have had to have been closer to the North Walpole area if we're talking about the same person. Because what's that person doing in Framingham or along a route somewhere in Massachusetts if this is the same person? Uh, it's possible that Betsy got multiple rides that day. Like someone took her part of the way and then closer to yeah yeah you know the upper valley she got in somebody else's car and maybe it was closer to where eva was picked up closer to claremont i think don't quote me on my geography here but i think coming from north walpole toward claremont this unity stage road is right off of route 12 so he would pick her up and then just have to like veer to the right on unity stage road and like travel down that road for a while not not too too far like a few miles um so maybe it was just out of convenience yeah and the the time frame that's elapsed i mean that doesn't that just suggest like this person had been there the whole time that the killer had been in the area the whole time yeah between north walpole and claremont give or take to give or take some miles in that radius and even over the border yeah, I don't think this was like some out-of-stater coming in and killing women. Um, I think it was definitely somebody who lived in that area, either like in Claremont or the surrounding towns or across the river in Vermont. Yeah, someone who is very familiar with traveling on those roads and familiar with the woods even, too. And again, that's where like the hunter-fisherman thing comes in. If you have that pastime, that hobby or whatever. You would definitely be familiar with the areas where these bodies were found. Another thing like I thought was kind of interesting is that this place where Eva was found and where Betsy was found was near like a pretty popular swimming hole. And I guess if you were local to that town, you might know. But if you aren't necessarily local to that town, you, you might not know if, that, if that's a place where, where people frequent in the summer. Yeah, I know places like that um, where I grew up. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think that says a lot. Yeah. I mean, if you did know it was popular, like, did he want them to be found quickly? I don't know. Maybe it's like the rush of knowing people are near there. Yeah. And the possibility of something, something changing, you know, being discovered or something like maybe that's a thrill in some very bizarre way. I just have one more thing about Eva before we move on. And that is how I've always felt. And I think a lot of people after hearing the episode, feel the same way, that this is sort of a turning point in the series. This is, I guess, like a pin in the narrative where a little bit of a turn is taken because Eva's story is handled in such a disgusting way by law enforcement, and it just resonates to how we hear about these crimes even today. So there's reflections of how these are covered back then and today that are really similar. And... I, my heart goes out to all of these people, all of these women, their families, but mo- like a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of space reserved for Eva because she had a, she, she had a child and she was struggling with her sexuality and she didn't have a lot of support around her even when she was discovered in death. And it just, it, it's the one that you look at and you're like, that sucks. That poor woman. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if Eva was struggling with her sexuality. She definitely was out and was openly dating women, occasionally men. At that time and in that place, 
uh, it was probably really hard. Even now, like there's there's been quite a few reactions to Eva's episode and learning this information about her. And then I also made a decision to come out in the podcast, uh, which I think is important, maybe in light of how Eva was treated all those years ago. And then it's still kind of happening today. Definitely not as bad, obviously. But I thought it was important to kind of talk about that and talk through that. Not only the fact that, like, you know, Eva was a brave person for living the way she wanted to live and dating who she wanted to date, but to kind of point out the fact that she was treated badly then and it wasn't necessarily because, oh, it was a long time ago. I think by any time standard, any era's standard, it was just mean. Like, it's not about politics. It's not about personal preferences. I think it was just mean the way they treated Eva. Um, and that point had to be made. Absolutely. And yeah, I thought it was great um, when you came out. And I think that's great because I think it connects you more to Eva and um, some of these victims. Yeah, I, I mean, partially understand the struggle, you know. Obviously, I didn't uh, grow up in a rural area in the 80s. But I definitely, you know, lived out like the early years of my coming out process in a world that was quite different than today. Um, yeah. So maybe we should note that uh, there were a few homophobic uh, comments that came in. So uh, we've got our fill of those. We don't need any more. Thank you, Val. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> um, feel free to have your opinion silently. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that just confirmed how important it is for me to have just put that line in there like as a gay woman this stuff is still happening and it sucks <laughs> yeah but keep downloading the episodes <laughs> yeah if that person had to listen to five hours of dark valley <laughs> to figure it out i'm sure they'll listen to the rest yeah, too. i'm sure they will and when you leave the review make sure you use those keywords like lgbtq uh you know these are all really good seo for us Yes. Okay. So the last thing I want to mention about Eva and this, gosh, I don't even really know how to describe my reaction when I read this. It was, I had an extremely emotional reaction to to reading uh, Eva's autopsy report. While it's not that different from other women, I don't know why it, it hit me so hard. But in the report, it notes that she suffered numerous cuts to her throat, like Kathy like Betsy, like Bernice, and then it was so bad that she was partially decapitated. I don't even like saying it. <laughs> That's just vicious. Like there was more emotion or more anger toward Eva in some way. Which is interesting because the next one is the one that's always the outlier, and we always describe Linda Moore as having these like frenzied style or or it was a frenzied type attack and this is the first time we're talking about that coming right off of eva's murder we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors thank you for listening now back to the show linda was a year after eva and that was across the river in vermont uh, she was killed in her home on April 15th, 1986. 
She had been sunbathing in her yard. She got a telephone call from her husband who said he was going to stop back home to get his checkbook to pay an employee. And in between those times, somebody had entered her home and stabbed her to death. I did find out a little bit more about her autopsy report. Um, and I know I we discussed at length, even in the episode covering Linda with Dr. Philpin, because he was privy to you know, that crime scene and that, those reports and everything. She was definitely stabbed over 20 times. There were several deep stabs to her throat, and it severed her trachea and esophagus. Same as a lot of the other cases that we've talked about here. Um, additionally, she had six deep stab wounds to her abdomen and numerous defensive wounds on both hands. And then there's one other thing that I had not come across at all before, but it kind of tracks with what we know Dr. Philpin was doing, like in his profiling. He was like walking around the house and going to the woods and seeing where someone might have been standing to watch Linda and knowing that she was alone, that she was going to go inside. So apparently twigs and grass were found near the body inside her house which suggested that the killer may have approached the Moore home from the wooded area behind the house, uh, which also led to a riverbank. The house was on kind of a bend in the river there. I thought that was pretty important. Wow. I think that's very important. Yeah. And I, I have to say that um, I agree that this this case obviously doesn't follow a lot of the same markers that the other ones do. But with this added information, I, I could totally see this being the same killer and coming from an area that wasn't expected because I think we thought that this person was driving by or maybe jogging by. And there's even a person who was interviewed who was jogging by, which I thought was a fascinating part of um, the episode about Linda. But this makes more sense to me. I was just thinking like right now, what if he wasn't out stalking linda per se like not purposefully stalking linda but he was out hunting he could have been in those woods he could have been fishing along that river and he just happened to see this rather beautiful woman sunbathing out in her yard and just saw another opportunity yep and i think this one might speak a little bit more to where the killer was residing or maybe even temporarily residing because it's very close to north walpole it's very close to where Jane's attacked in Keene. It's almost in between Claremont and Keene, south of Claremont, just north, just northwest of Keene, off of Route 12 and over the Connecticut River. So, yeah, if you're thinking about somebody who's committed these crimes before and just takes the opportunity, I mean, he barely got away with it, too. He had no, he had no way of knowing her husband was coming home. Right. I mean, was he already in the house when the phone call happened? Scary. I mean, but the yeah, the specifics of, yeah, it's scary. It's terrifying. The specifics of that phone conversation that he would have to hear would have to have been extended to a period of time where he would know, I have time here. You know, she would have had to have said, okay, well, I'll see you in a little bit. And I guess they had like a little tiff. Her and her husband had like a, not a fight, but they had a disagreement on the phone. So he would have had to have known that. He would have just had to have known, like, her husband's not coming home. Or he would have had to have known, this is where Linda Moore lives. And her husband is the, you know, contractor for whatever construction he was working on at the time. And and she's typically home alone during this time. But also, it's in April in Vermont, 
the odds that she's outside sunbathing, like that it would be that warm. Also, what an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, all those things kind of make me think that she's more a victim of opportunity and not uh, necessarily known by the killer or stalked previously by him. I was definitely, well, I guess I still am on the fence about whether Linda Moore's murder is connected to, you know, the Valley killings over the border in New Hampshire. I think knowing more specifics about these uh, cuts to the throat and knowing about the like the debris from outside that was found near her body, I think kind of pushes me a little over the side of the fence on the fact that it that it is connected. Same. I feel the same way. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now we're moving into our kind of final victim before Jane's attack. And that was Barbara Agnew. She had been driving back up north toward Norwich, Vermont, uh, from Stratton Mountain. She had like a, a nice ski day down there. This was on January 10th, 1987. She left the ski mountain around 10, 1030 at night and would have kind of arrived at this rest area off of I-91. I want to say like 11, 1130 between those times. We don't know why she stopped there we speculate that you know she either had to use the bathroom or she wanted to use the payphone uh, because her car was found quite near uh, a payphone barbara's body was not found until that spring march 28th 1987 and it wasn't too too far away from where the rest stop was she was found in a town called heartland vermont on a very rural scary road called advent hill road and her body was found uh, beneath an apple tree. And we do have a, a couple more details about both her abduction and her autopsy. Jeez. Okay. So I found this pretty interesting that it could yield some information. But apparently on Barbara's car, on her BMW, I think it was like a dark green color. There was a dent in her back bumper and distinctive yellow paint chips were found on the bumper. What do you guys make of that? That sounds like a snowplow. Right? It does. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because there's not a lot of yellow cars. Or like some state road vehicle. We know that Barbara's car was towed before it could be processed by police because they just didn't know it was a crime scene at the time. So maybe that could have happened in the towing process. Yeah, it's possible. I think that happens a lot. Yeah. I just found it interesting that it was noted on the file like maybe they had ruled out uh the, the the tow truck and maybe these paint chips kind of pointed to what vehicle the killer was driving and if it was the the killer's vehicle what happened that this kind of accident occurred did she try to get back into her car and he rear-ended her did the rear-end happen to give him an excuse to talk to her yeah could have been either of those could have been um an accident on his part, leaving the scene even. Putting the vehicle right behind her to prevent mm -hmm. her from backing up and she backs up into it. Yeah. Yeah, that's possible. Or like, so the snowplow driver thing we've explored kind of at length, like could it have been a guy who drives a snowplow who you know killed Barbara and perhaps the other women um, because it was you know a heavy snowstorm that night and he would have needed some kind of heavy duty vehicle definitely to get to heartland vermont on that uh, rural road uh but i wonder like 
now that I'm thinking about it, if you did have a plow, you have an excuse to be in that parking lot on in the rest area, right? On a snowy evening, you're just plowing the parking lot. And if you see a person you want to potentially abduct or have a reason to talk to, like you're driving your plow by and you accidentally hit the back of her car or bump it or nick it or something. And then she gets out of her car and being like, hey, buddy, like, what are you doing? And then right there, she's out of the car. It's a payphone there too, right? Mm-hmm. Any indication that she had used the payphone? I don't think it was thought of at the time that she would have used that payphone. That was something that John and I, or Dr. Philbin and I had discussed. Like I had floated my theory about the payphone because it crops up in a couple of the other cases. Like with Ellen's, she's on a payphone. Uh, Jane was asked by her attacker if the payphone was working, which makes me think that maybe part of his, I don't know, trapping route uh, included payphones because it's definitely an opportunistic place. Yeah. And also, talking about plows, said somebody would have an excuse there to be in this rest area. Big storm. So do you think that the person, if this person had a plow, had plowed that rest area? Because why would she be pulling into a rest area that wasn't plowed in the first place? Yeah, that's a fair point. I just don't know how much snow had accumulated by that time. Like, I think the storm started in the evening. So maybe by the time that she stopped at the rest area, it wasn't like super deep snow. By the morning, there was 12 inches. I also wonder if there's a record of anyone who was contracted by the state to plow out the rest areas along that route. Don't plow drivers sometimes wait like in their plow for the snow? You know, maybe sometimes they would wait in a parking lot potentially. Pretty sure I've seen like a fleet of them waiting. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Yeah. I mean, maybe he wasn't necessarily looking for a victim that evening and he was in his work truck or, you know, there's, there's definitely people who like have a little side job plowing and they have like a truck that can handle a plow. So it's not necessarily like a state owned vehicle that they're driving. It's a personal vehicle. Uh, But the plow, I mean, the ones I've seen are usually yellow, sometimes red. I wonder if she was following the plow truck because he was plowing the road and she just followed him in. Yeah. Another good thought. All right. So Barbara was from Canada. Uh, She would definitely be used to driving in such conditions. I've definitely followed snow plows before, like to have a clean road ahead. But I don't know why she would pull into the rest stop behind the plow. I don't know. So close to home. My point is like she wouldn't have freaked out over a couple inches of snow. Not after driving that far anyway. Right. So a couple things to note about her autopsy. So according to this report, quote, large blood stains radiated outward in the snow around her head and neck, which was stabbed and slashed. The cuts to her neck had severed her right carotid artery and right jugular vein. Uh, Barbara's abdomen was also stabbed and slashed horizontally, partially eviscerating her, and there were defensive wounds found on both hands. So this is very consistent with a bunch of other cases that we've talked about. I mean, at least to um, Kathy Milligan. And these, uh, Kathy Milligan was 78. Barbara was 1987. 
for them to not be connected and have that similar slash and stab cuts would be pretty remarkable. Yeah, I I agree. I absolutely think it's this uh, same pattern. It's so helpful to know what was on law enforcement's minds because I I know there's been some question, at least in my mind and people I've talked to's minds is like, well, how are they connected? Like just stabbing doesn't necessarily mean they are connected, but it's so distinctive. Now I fully understand why these cases are being talked about in the same conversation. Definitely clears things up in my mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm more cleared up too. I'm I'm already wondering if there are others out there. When you say it here that large bloodstains radiated outward in the snow around her head and neck, this was where she was found? Yes, that was on Advent Hill Road beneath the apple tree. So I think the thought is that there was some kind of fight that ensued at the rest stop because we did see some blood spatter. I don't think it was enough blood to be fatal. So I think the thought is um, that she was wounded at the rest stop and then taken to this Advent Hill Road and killed there. Well, I would say that that takes like a state plow out of the equation, right? Because he would have transported her um, already injured. Uh, somewhere else so we're def i would say we're definitely talking about his personal vehicle it could still have a plow on it as we noted but yeah yeah that's a, that's a really good point because you can't just return a vehicle you drive for work in the nighttime with a bunch of blood stains in it and not explain what happened and i thought that it was really interesting in the episode where jane was talking about barbara's case and how it's um how she felt it was most similar to her attack yeah, I mean, we have someone pulling into a parking lot around the same time of night, some kind of interaction that occurred near a payphone, a fight in that parking lot. And then Jane maintains that her attacker was trying to get her to go in his car and go elsewhere, which ultimately Barbara was either forced or convinced to get into his car. I'm going to go with forced since it seems like she fought. Same as Jane. Yeah. And then I did want to bring up a thing about Jane. Like, since we have all this new information about like neck wounds, we definitely know in Jane's case that her neck was cut as well. She did have those, I guess, more superficial stab wounds in her abdomen and chest, but her neck was cut. I don't know if it was, wasn't as deep as the other women um, that allowed Jane to get up and drive herself to safety, but my goodness. It's very similar. So that kind of wraps up all the cases, all the new updates we've gotten. It was still a lot. I hope uh, you listening have a better sense of the timeline now that it's kind of condensed like this. We want to talk about what to expect coming up in the next five episodes of Dark Valley. Right. Like what what in the world is coming up after this? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, we've hinted a bunch of times that there were like developments, that there are updates, and we're definitely not going to say specifically what those are, but I'll give you a little tease. So we are the second half of Dark Valley, while still victim focused, you're still going to hear from Jane and other people. Um, it's going to be a lot more person of interest or suspect heavy, the whodunit part of the story. We do talk about one known suspect that's been publicly talked about as Michael Nicolau. We're going to sort of raise some questions about the legitimacy of him being a suspect. And then I'm going to say 
we have three new persons of interest in the Valley cases that was developed out of research, out of talking to people. And two of these persons are semi uh, related to a 2004 missing persons case in New Hampshire and a 1984 murder in Vermont. I I am excited for people's thoughts and what the reception is going to be on the second half of Dark Valley. It's been pretty kind of like women's lives focused with a you know a couple deviations into, you know, persons of interests, uh, suspects and everything. But really we've been using our knowledge of these women's lives and their abduction sites to kind of shade in the outline of this assailant, right? Like he's kind of emerging out of those details and hopefully we'll be able to shade in a little bit more in the next five episodes. Yeah, it's a really good point to make because we've said a number of things during this conversation that have been really eye-opening on on this end here. All of this discussion about like the 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 patterns that these women had, their jobs, the the community, all does, like you said, shade some sort of image of the person who's responsible for this. Somebody somebody in that that radius. Yeah, all good points. And I certainly hope by covering these interesting persons uh, that maybe someone's memory is going to be jogged. Maybe you have a tip and you didn't even know. Um, I encourage you to write in or call the Vermont or New Hampshire State Police with those tips and information. Alternatively, or in addition to, you can reach out to us at darkvalleyshow at gmail.com. And we are on Instagram at darkvalleyshow. Sort of sidecar to these Dark Valley episodes is the reaction episodes on Jane's podcast, Invisible Tears, which was a really cool idea to do. So if you are out there and you think you might have some information or you know you have information, but you're not sure what to do and you, you, you're you kind of grappling with it emotionally, I would suggest to listen to Jane's reaction to these episodes because all of a sudden you'll you'll hear a human being who is attacked by this person at this stage in her life trying to figure everything out. And and if that's not enough to put you over the top, I don't know what the hell is. Yeah, it's been really interesting for us to listen to those episodes, too, and sort of get a sense of how Jane is reacting to this new information, stuff she's never heard before, pertaining to her own case and other cases. So, yeah, definitely give that a listen. Her podcast is called Invisible Tears. Check it out. Anyway, this has gone on pretty long, <laughs> but I just want to thank the both of you for joining me. Thank you, Jen. It's been our pleasure. Dark Valley episode eight will air on August 4th. That's a Friday. Every episode will air a week after that. But if you can't wait, subscribe to our Apple subscription service. It's called Missing and Crawl Space Premium. And you can get access to the first seven episodes. And we're going to drop episodes eight through 12 on August 4th. Until next time.